0: When things go wrong, we often look for a scapegoat. We want to excuse ourselves and we want to blame others for our problems. Maybe we blame our parents or our spouse or our kids. Maybe we blame a coach or a boss at work. So often, this is really just looking for a way to avoid taking responsibility for ourselves. And so it really just makes things worse. We have to own up to the ways that we have contributed to our problems rather than just looking for others to blame. But really we can do the same thing at a societal level or a cultural level or a national level. We can go looking for a scapegoat, someone to blame for what's gone wrong in our society. Racism is often a form of scapegoating. The problems of my race are caused by that other race. Uh, Anti-Semitism is often a form of scapegoating. The Jewish population gets blamed for all of society's problems. Most of the time, scapegoating in this way is evil. Again, it is an evil way of seeking to escape responsibility. Because the reality is, more often than not, people are the cause of their own problems. And again, looking for a scapegoat just makes matters worse when Israel lost back-to-back battles with the Philistines, first without the Ark and then with the Ark on the battlefield, they really couldn't blame anyone but themselves. When they lost the first battle, they were confident that bringing the Ark out would save them the next time. And of course, when the Philistines heard that the Ark was in the Israelite camp, they were terrified of its presence. It turned out both were wrong. The Philistines really had nothing to fear. They won the battle, and the Israelites were way overconfident because they lost the battle. But why did the Israelites lose? Why did the battle play out this way? Well, everything in this book up to this point shows us why Israel lost what have we seen Eli and his household are corrupt they are the priests this is the high priestly family they represent the nation the nation has sunk into idolatry following the lead of their priests they have fallen into idolatry sure there were exceptions like Elkanah and Hannah and Samuel but overall the nation has been corrupted with the worship of false gods their families are corrupt their worship is corrupt their politics have become corrupt Had they been a repentant and faithful nation, the Lord would have been with them and they would have defeated the Philistines. There is no question. But instead, they presume upon the Lord. They fall into the sin of covenant presumption. They don't fear God. They don't take his holiness seriously. They figure it doesn't really matter how they live so long as they have the ark with them. They are God's special people. So, of course, he must give them the victory. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. The Israelites had no one but themselves to blame for their defeat. They lost to the Philistines because their pastors, the priests, were not faithful and the people had followed suit. The fathers of the land were like Eli, not restraining their wayward children or raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The book of Judges describes this time period in Israel's history by saying everyone did what was right in his own eyes." They might have looked for somebody to blame, but really they had no one to blame but themselves. Now the reality is we can do the same thing in our own day. How is it that the American church seems to experience one defeat after another, one humiliating setback after another? Sure, there are a few exceptions to that, but overall I think everybody would say that's been the trend. Faithful Christians used to be the most powerful force in our culture. We had great influence Now faithful Christians in our country are weak. Our influence is waned. Today it seems the sexual revolution and other anti-Christian movements have far more cultural sway than the gospel in our land. It seems that our gospel is being discipled far more by other gods than by the church in the ways of the true God. Why is that? Some Christians go looking for a scapegoat. Uh, Some Christians want to blame the progressives or the liberals for the downfall of this Christian influence, but that doesn't really explain anything. Where, after all, did progressivism come from? How did it become so culturally dominant? It didn't have to happen that way. Why has it happened that way? Since when has the darkness been stronger than the light? You can't blame the progressives or the liberals for what's gone wrong. Some Christians will look for another scapegoat seeking to blame various aspects of the modern world, just the way modern life works. They'll point to the industrial revolution or the technological revolution and say, these things have distracted us from spiritual pursuits and they've made traditional religious forms of family life and social life more difficult to pursue. It's really the fault of our technology. But why, I ask, would technology undermine the Christian faith? After all, we believe in the dominion mandate, the creation mandate, which includes ruling over the earth, subduing it, having dominion over the creation, which certainly includes taking the resources, the raw materials of the earth and developing technology. There's nothing inherently anti-Christian about technology, just the opposite, in fact. But still, Christians do this kind of thing. We look for a scapegoat. It's easy to point the finger but the reality is the only ones we have to blame for the decline of Christian influence in America is ourselves. It is our unfaithfulness, our corruption, our compromise that has led to our downfall. The salt has lost its saltiness and that's why we're being trampled underfoot. We're really in the exact same position as Israel here in 1 Samuel. Like Israel, we have to learn again the fear of the Lord. We have to learn the holiness of the Lord. We have to learn to take responsibility for ourselves and for the mission God has given to us. Our defeats are our own fault. We are to blame. We've got to grasp that. Grasping this is the only way we can pull out of this crisis and restore sanity and sanctity to our culture. It's the church's job to do that. We failed. what would it take to get it right? Again, think about Israel here. Israel went from overconfidence, or you could say misplaced confidence when they brought the ark into the camp, to total helplessness and despair after the ark was lost. And I think that's how many Christians in America have been. We've gone from overconfidence, really Again, that sin of covenant presumption to total despair and hopelessness, expecting we can't win any victory at all. It's just going to be one defeat after another. Many Christians today are despairing, just like Israel at the end of chapter four. But see, that's not the right response to our defeat. Christians should always have hope and confidence, but that hope and confidence is not in ourselves, it is in the gospel. We have to remember the kind of church that triumphs is a church that trusts God, that claims his promises, that obeys his law. That is the way forward. That's what Israel had to learn, that's what we have to learn. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we see the aftermath of what happened when the ark was captured. The ark has been captured by the Philistines, And I think this is very instructive for us in our particular set of circumstances because, again, our situation has so many analogies with Israel at this moment in her history. At this point, Israel has been conquered. They are a conquered people. They have not been exiled from their land. The ark has been exiled, but not the people. Nevertheless, they are, for all practical purposes, enslaved in their own land. God has used the Philistines to bring judgment against his unfaithful people. Meanwhile, the Ark of the Lord, uh, the throne of the Lord, has been carried off into exile into the land of Philistia as a trophy of war. The Lord has allowed himself to be dishonored on the field of battle. He has allowed himself to be captured by the pagan Philistines. But all that's about to change. What happens here? You've heard of the plagues on Egypt. Well, now you're going to hear about the plagues On Philistia. See what happened to the Egyptians, what happened to the Philistines until finally they set the Ark free, and the Ark makes an exodus back to the Promised Land with all kinds of plunder. Just like the Israelite people were set free from slavery in Egypt and left the land of Egypt with all kinds of plunder after the Egyptian gods had been humiliated. So it's all going to happen here. And it really makes sense because the Philistines are actually related to the Egyptians. They're cousins of the Egyptians, basically. And so just as they're related to the Egyptians, they experienced an Egyptian-like series of plagues and disasters. When the Philistines captured the Ark, they did what they would have done with any religious trophy captured on the field of battle. They took it to their central city. Remember, there are five Philistine cities, five major Philistine cities. They take it to their central city, Ashdod, and they put the Ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. There are five Philistine cities, Dagon's temple is in Ashdod, that's why they take it there. Ashdod was the most central and the greatest city of the Philistines. The Philistines understood that their war with the Israelites was not just a a battle at the human level, not just a, a battle of flesh and blood, they understood it was really a war of the gods. And their god, Dagon, had won the battle against Yahweh, or so they thought. They set up the Ark of the Lord beside the image of Dagon as, as if the Ark of the Lord is going to pay homage to Dagon. <clears throat> this would be the ultimate humiliation of the Ark, or again, so it would seem. To be set up in the house of another god as if Yahweh is there to uh, be in subservience to the Philistine god. That, that's really what this is about. That's really what the Philistines are doing here. Again, it looks like Yahweh is completely under Philistine control. It looks like they've got Yahweh locked up. They put him in Dagon's temple. They go away for the night. They come back the next morning, and what do they find? Something strange has happened overnight. The next morning, the people of Ashdod find that Dagon has fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord. That's obvious to us what's happened It's not that Dagon has power over Yahweh the way the Philistines thought. Actually, Yahweh has power over Dagon. The Philistines were wrong about this. See, Yahweh is no pluralist. He does not view other gods as his peers. Indeed, he has no real rival. He will not be content to be one god among many and a pantheon of gods. Yahweh will not just take his place at the table with the other gods. Yahweh does not respect other religions. Because other religions are false, and the other gods are idols. Not all gods are the same. Obviously, this is highly offensive to those who are committed to some form of religious pluralism, the view that all religions are equally true, all religions are basically the same, all religions should be equally tolerated. That's not Yahweh's view. Yahweh topples Dagon. Yahweh humbles Dagon. Well, the Philistines think, well, maybe this is just a coincidence Uh, And so they set Dagon upright in his place. The whole picture here really is pretty ridiculous. It's, It's actually pretty comical. Dagon can't put himself in his place, so they have to do it for him. They have to prop him up. In Isaiah 46, the prophet mocks the gods of the Gentiles saying, they have to carry their gods around on their shoulders and set their gods in their place. And their gods cannot move. When the people cry out to them, they cannot answer or save. That was Isaiah's critique of the Babylonian gods, but applies just as much to Dagon here. Dagon is obviously helpless. But the Philistines are slow learners. They don't see that just yet. Well, they put Dagon in his place, they go away, they come back the next morning, and this time, not only has Dagon's statue fallen face downward in front of the Ark of Yahweh, as if now it's paying homage to Yahweh, it's kind of like Dagon is doing his morning prayers before Yahweh's throne, but it's not just that, it's not just that he's fallen before the Ark again, now his head and his hands have been broken off. See, the roles have been completely reversed. On the battlefield, it looked like Dagon was the stronger God. But now Yahweh is showing he is actually the greater God, and he's doing it on Dagon's home turf. He's humiliating Dagon right there in his own house. Yahweh is the warrior God who is destroying Dagon. Literally, the text says his head and his hands are chopped off. He is now a headless and handless God, which is to say he's no God at all. Dagon has been decapitated, which of course ties back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent will crush the skull, uh, the, the, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent's head. And really in a way that's what you have here. The ark, Yahweh, has crushed the head of Dagon. Dagon is a satanic idol whose head is broken off. This was such a devastating event that the Philistines never forgot it. Verse 5 tells us that they don't step on the threshold of the doorway into Dagon's temple out of remembrance for this event. They were still reverencing Dagon down to the day when this was written, and they would step over the threshold rather than on the threshold because that's where Dagon's head ended up. It's kind of like Yahweh was kicking Dagon's head out of the temple, out of his own temple. He's right there on the threshold, of the doorway. Well, obviously the Lord is making a mockery of Dagon. The Lord has triumphed over Dagon. This has got to be understood as a contest of the gods, and Yahweh is winning. Again, it ties back to the Exodus. God said in the Exodus that he would not only judge Pharaoh, but he would judge the gods of the Egyptians. Dagon, like the gods of the Egyptians, is helpless before Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God said he would execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. And that's exactly what he did. And that's why after the Exodus, after the Israelites had crossed through the Red Sea, they sang the song of Moses, which includes these words in Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Obviously, none of the other gods are as great as Yahweh. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? No other god is like Yahweh. No, the God, not the gods of the Egyptians, certainly not Dagon. Yahweh brings judgment against the idols. Verse 6 tells us the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. The Lord's hands are still intact. Dagon's hands have been broken off, but not the Lord's hands. And so he can still act in the world in ways that Dagon can't. And indeed, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people. He afflicted the people of Ashdod with tumors. This is probably uh, something like the bubonic plague, since later on we find rats are involved. But some kind of terrible sickness, some kind of plague. And so the people of Ashdod surrender. They say the ark can't stay with us any longer, for the Lord's hand is against us and Dagon. So, just as in chapter 4, the elders of uh, of Israel came together to make a decision about the ark, so here, all the leaders of the Philistines come together to decide what to do with the ark. And they decide to send the ark to another Philistine city. Isn't this loving your neighbor? Hey, it caused plagues here, it gave us terrible disease, let's send it on to our neighbors. They send the ark on to the Philistine city of Gath. But once the ark got to Gath, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Gath. They too got tumors. They were also plagued. And so what do they do? Well, they send the ark on to another Philistine city, this time Ekron. But the people of Ekron, by this time, they've heard the headlines. They know the pattern. And as the ark comes their way, they break out into a deadly panic The hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ekron. There were many there who died and got tumors as well. So they want to send the ark away as well. What's happening? It's kind of like the ark is a hot potato. The ark is radioactive. The ark is dangerous. God is dangerous. Yahweh is not going to be domesticated. He can't be subordinated to Dagon or anything or anyone else. And as the ark is being Moved from city to city in Philistia. It's kind of like the ark is, is taking a victory lap. He's going on a victory tour through Philistia, showing off his power. Back on the battlefield, it looked like Dagon had won, but actually Yahweh is showing now, no, he is the stronger God. Now, next week, in the next chapter, we're going to see how the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel and, and what they went through to send the ark back to Israel. That's going to be important in its own right. But I want to stop here in the story, and I want to ask the question, what lessons can we draw from this part of 1 Samuel? What lessons can we draw from this part of the story, where Yahweh allows himself to be defeated on the the field of battle and then is taken captive, and what he does there while he's in captivity? Well, the first thing I think we have to understand here is that uh, this story shows us that behind the so-called culture wars, is really a spiritual war. Behind our so-called cultural wars, which, are, which are, get so much attention in our culture, what's really behind that is a spiritual war. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. See, our real warfare is with demons, demonic idols, the satanic forces that have arrayed themselves against Yahweh and Yahweh's people and Yahweh's purposes. That's our real enemy in the battle we're called to fight. Now, in the modern world, our idols are much better disguised than they were in the ancient world. In the modern world, our idols um, go covert in all kinds of ways and very different than, than how it worked in the ancient world. But it's the same idols, it's the same demonic hosts at work. Non-Christians in America generally don't think of themselves as worshiping a god. Secular people are godless, right? They would say, we don't have a religion. Well, the reality is they do have a religion, they do have a god. They may not recognize themselves as worshipers of a god, servants of a god, but they do have a a god. They are beholden to the principalities and powers. They are in bondage to Satan, ultimately. And to varying degrees, all non-Christians do Satan's bidding. See, behind Dagon, Dagon himself was nothing, but behind Dagon was really a demon. Dagon was nothing. There's no such thing as Dagon. But behind the facade of Dagon, behind their Dagonite worship, were demons. Demonic hosts vying for human worship and service, deceiving the people. Blinding the people. That's still what's going on today. There's still a conflict of the gods, and it plays itself out in life, in society, all around us. People are serving other gods. Sometimes we're tempted to serve other gods ourselves. Every time we sin, we're putting ourselves in service of a false god. There are many in our culture who serve Mammon, the god of money. They believe Mammon's promises that Mammon can buy happiness. There are some that serve Aphrodite, the the goddess of sexual autonomy, and they think that sexual liberation, sexual autonomy, is the way of freedom and and happiness. There are still others who serve Dionysius, the the god of wine and partying. There there are those who serve the god Apollo and think that that human reason is the highest authority and, and, and can help us unlock the secrets of the universe. These are all false gods. These are all idols. What idols do is they take... Aspects of God's good creation and they twist them so that people use them in perverse ways. What this story shows us is ultimately all of these false gods will be defeated by the true God, by Yahweh. We could say by the Lord Jesus Christ, Yahweh incarnate. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to ultimately overcome all these other gods. He's going to do to these other gods what the ark did to Dagon. Think about Colossians 2. This says, at the cross, Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers, humiliating them and triumphing over them. Just like Dagon got literally disarmed, (laughs) that is what Jesus is going to do to all the false gods, all the principalities and powers, all the satanic hosts. And the reality is we have our part to play in this warfare. Ephesians 6 makes that clear that we have a part to play in this battle. 2 Corinthians 10 makes it clear we have our part to play in this battle as well. 2 Corinthians 10 says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God with the goal of taking every thought captive to the obedience of God. Of Christ. That's a wonderful way to describe the church's spiritual warfare. We don't use carnal weapons, we use spiritual weapons like preaching and prayer. And this is how we fight, and this is how we bring the thoughts of people into captivity, to make their thoughts obedient to Christ so they live in a new way. That's one lesson here, certainly, the lesson of spiritual warfare. It's always what's going on behind the scenes, and it's really what explains what's happening in our culture, this spiritual warfare. But there's a second lesson here that's also very relevant to our present moment, our present crisis, and it's this. See, it's one thing to say that Yahweh or the Lord Jesus will defeat those idols. It's another thing to actually see it and experience it. And in our day, we don't really see it and experience it a whole lot. Well, it was the same for the Israelites. For a time in this story, in Samuel, it did not look like Yahweh was the stronger God. It looked like Yahweh had been defeated. It looked like Yahweh's people would be losers. Well, today in 2023, it doesn't look like Yahweh is the stronger God either. The other gods are looking pretty strong right now. So what do we do? Well, this is what's interesting. And this is where I think this passage can really, really help us. First Samuel chapters 4 through 7 almost feel like a detour in the book of Samuel. It's like we were kind of going along with a certain story, and then it got interrupted by this story in these chapters about the ark. What's going on in Samuel before we get to this story about the ark? Well, uh, you've, got, you've got Eli and his household. You've got Eli who's fallen into sin, his sons who have fallen into even greater sins, so the sins that the the priestly household is committing then of course right along Eli and Hophni and Phinehas their corrupt priesthood we meet Samuel we get introduced to Samuel and Samuel is a, a gift of God given to his mother Hannah in response to her prayer and and Samuel is a lifetime Nazirite and he's going to grow up serving the Lord in his house he's a young priest He's a young priest ministering to God in his house, and now he's also been called as a prophet. That's really where we left off at the end of uh, of chapter 3 before we got into this story with the ark of God being captured. Samuel has been functioning as a priest, and now he's been called as a prophet. And the word of the Lord is going out through Samuel to all of Israel. But then, just as we're getting to know Samuel, he disappears from the story a long stretch we don't hear anything about Samuel between chapters 4 and 7 and we can ask the question we should ask the question what was Samuel doing for all this time where is we where is he the last we heard about Samuel was in chapter 4 verse 1 where we read that the word of Samuel which again is the word of the Lord came to all Israel So this describes an ongoing ministry that Samuel had, a preaching ministry that he had all throughout Israel. We come back around to Samuel. We we meet Samuel again at the start of chapter 7. By the time we get to chapter 7, of course, the ark has been captured and the ark has been returned. That didn't go back to Shiloh, but the ark has been returned to Israel. It spent seven months in Philistia. So for seven months, the ark was in Philistia, being passed around from one city to the next, But then by the time we meet Samuel, another 20 years have passed. 20 years have gone by. From the start of chapter 4, when when we last heard about Samuel and the word of Samuel was going out to all Israel, when we meet him again, 20 years have gone by. He's no longer a young man. He's no longer a boy. He's now fully grown. In chapter 7, verse 3, we read, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth idols from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. See, even after the ark came back to Israel, they were still under Philistine oppression. And they continued to engage in idolatry. They were compromised with false gods during all these years. For 20 years, even after they saw the ark come back, even after they knew that the ark had won a victory over Dagon, the people of Israel continued to give themselves over to idolatry. What has Samuel been doing for that 20 years? Where has Samuel been? Well, for for these 20 years, Samuel has been preaching. Preaching. He's been preaching against the idols of the Israelites all this time. He's been preaching a message of repentance. He's been calling on the Israelites to serve Yahweh only for 20 years. Sermon after sermon, apparently falling on deaf ears, uh, until the people finally repented in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 4, it says, So, finally, the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaraths and serve the Lord only. And then the next thing that happens after they repent of their idolatry is they go, following Samuel's leadership, they go fight the Philistines again, and they win, and they regain their freedom. The land is set free from Philistine oppression. But for 20 years, Samuel preached. He patiently preached, he faithfully preached, until the seed of the word finally took root and began bearing fruit. Samuel kept preaching in a time of crisis and judgment and defeat. A time of great darkness and idolatry in the land. At times it it appeared that God's own people would never get their act together. And yet Samuel continued preaching repeatedly in chapters 3, 4, and then 7. We are told that Samuel's word went out to the whole house of Israel, to the whole nation. It took 20 years, but finally they began to listen and they repented. And again, we're going to see in chapter 7 when we get there that they again had a great battle against the Philistines and this time they win it and they regain their freedom. So what happens here? What's the big picture? Preaching led to revival and repentance, which led to victory. Samuel's faithful preaching of the word, it took a really long time. But his faithful preaching led the people to repentance, which produced revival, which led to victory. Now you might ask, well, what does that mean for us today? I think it's pretty obvious what it means for us today. What do we need more than anything? If it seems that darkness is spreading across the land, what do we need? We need the word to go out to all of America, to the whole house of Americans. We need to patiently and faithfully preach and teach God's word anywhere and everywhere. Certainly in our churches from the pulpits by the pastors, that's got to be there. But we need the word of the Lord to go out in our families, in our schools, everywhere. Because the word brings revival. And the word brings renewal. And the word brings about repentance. Now again, This was only after years and years of Samuel ministering quietly, maybe even invisibly in some way, certainly invisible uh, in the story for these 20 years. Samuel was ministering quietly and consistently and faithfully and patiently for decades. What do we need in our day? We need more Samuels. We need Christians, I would say especially Christian leaders, But there are all different kinds of ways in which you can be a Samuel. We need more Samuels in our day who know how to be patiently and quietly faithful. And who can proclaim and apply the word in all kinds of ways. Even in a land that seems increasingly covered in darkness. We need Christians, especially Christians in leadership, who know that the mission God has given to us is more of a marathon than a sprint. The growing faithful churches is really more of a marathon than a sprint. Building uh, Christian schools is really more of a marathon than a sprint. Raising faithful Christian children is more of a marathon than a sprint. Building Christendom is more of a marathon than a sprint. It takes time. Faithfulness over time. Patient faithfulness over time produces Sometimes we can get impatient and wonder, why hasn't God given us results already? Think about William Carey, who ministered for years. He was a Baptist missionary to to India. He ministered there for years and years before he had a single convert. And finally, when he got that first convert, the first Indian who confessed Christ, Carey wrote in his journal, he said, he's only one, (laughs) but there's a whole continent coming behind him. He was confident that slowly God would bring about the fulfillment of his promises. And you had to start somewhere. Patient, faithless over time yields fruit. I want you to think about one more historical example here that I think can help us. In the 18th century, England had fallen into wretched depravity, much like America in the 21st century. Uh, in the 18th century, England had fallen into gross depravity. It was said that religion and morality in England had completely collapsed. Faithful Christians in England in, in, in the first part of the 18th century were oppressed and even silenced. That's actually why many of them came over to America. Was to, you know, they crossed the Atlantic and came to America to escape religious persecution. They were being attacked in silence. Priests in the state church, the Anglican church, were rapidly becoming liberal Uh, The rise of Enlightenment rationalism had led the masses of people in the land to become deists or even atheists. Uh, Their their, their main universities, Oxford and Cambridge, drove out most of the serious Christians. The universities were corrupt and places that were hostile to the Christian faith. Uh, England was dominated by the slave trade. They'd actually gotten a monopoly on the slave trade. And so this utterly corrupt practice was right at the center of their national economy. Uh, Factory workers were not treated much better than slaves. Uh, Financial scandals plagued their economy. Bribery scandals plagued their politics. Pretty much any politician could be bought off. Sexual immorality, illegitimacy, brothels, and abortion all exploded in popularity in their culture. They had their own version of a, a sexual revolution in the first part of the 18th century. Alcoholism and drug addiction, even opioid addiction, a lot of this should be sounding very familiar, Uh, these forms of addiction were very, very common. Homosexuality, transvestism, which was their version of transgenderism, were common, even especially among the elites in their culture. Between 1700 and 1750, it seemed that Britain as a nation had apostatized. It seemed that England was spiritually dead. The Bible became a closed book with the result that the English people were given over to all kinds of vice and depravity. It seems this once Christian nation had been captured by the false gods and was being repaganized into this spiritual and moral quagmire stepped John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and a host of others. And these men rediscovered the gospel. They rediscovered the authority of God's word. They rediscovered the importance of preaching the word of God faithfully. And they led what came to be known as the Great Awakening. It wasn't easy. There were many times that the Wesleys and Whitfield narrowly escaped death. It was not uncommon for faithful preachers in those days to have objects thrown at them while they were preaching. Some of them had their houses set on fire. They were slandered in the newspapers continually, but what did they do? They kept preaching the word. They kept bringing the word of the Lord to all England and even crisscrossed the Atlantic several times. It's estimated that uh, John Wesley traveled 250,000 miles on horseback. So he could go to different places and preach. Not to mention Wesley and, and, the Whit- and, and Whitfield, They crisscrossed the Atlantic several times to preach in England as well as in America. And what happened over the course of about 20 years? God used their preaching to ignite a revival that ultimately transformed the English nation and it ultimately spread to colonial America as well. It's actually what empowered the colonists to fight the war for independence as a covenantal war uh, against a covenant-breaking king. Over the course of about 20 years, God used their preaching to ignite a revival that brought transformation to their land. People were regenerated and so society was regenerated. In the late 18th and into the early 19th century, England, uh, in in, in the late 18th and early 19th century, England was not only largely re-Christianized, but actually England became the driving force behind the modern missionary movement. England began to send out hosts of missionaries to all kinds of places that had never had the gospel before. This is when there's an explosion of missionary activity. It grows out of that Great Awakening. William Wilberforce got converted through the Great Awakening. And he fought, you probably know the story. He worked very hard, tirelessly in Parliament to end the British slave trade. In England, family life was rebuilt, sexual morality was rebuilt, working conditions improved. They closed the brothels, they restored orthodoxy to many of their churches, the universities were transformed. Now, what's all that mean for us? Well, America in 2023 is a whole lot like England in 1723, which is not too different from how things were in Israel in 1053 B.C., when all this is happening that we've read about. All that is to say, we've been here before. There's no reason to panic, and there's certainly no reason to despair. Sure, in our moment, it looks like the false gods are strong. It might look like the ark has been captured. It might look like the day gods of the moment have won. But don't be fooled. Yahweh is stronger. Yahweh is the stronger God. And even when it looks like other gods have the upper hand, we should be assured Yahweh will topple them all, The Lord Jesus Christ will disarm them all. And the same Lord who brought renewal to Israel in the 1000s BC, so they could go win that victory against the Philistines, the same Lord who brought transformation to England in the second half of the 18th century, that same Lord is at work through his word today. And he can bring renewal to our land through his word, he can shine a light that will overcome the darkness. And we hope and pray and work to that end. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.